All right, all right, all right. I'm Tony Miller, and this is the Miller Meets World podcast, where I talk to brave people with inspiring stories and big impact. This episode is brought to you by Melissa Miller of Compass Real Estate. When you're buying or selling a home in Santa Barbara or Montecito, you want Melissa's eye for timeless style and her invaluable ability to negotiate the best deal. Melissa is offering virtual or in-person agent services. Give Melissa a call at 805-570-9511 or visit compass.com. My guest today is Simon Dixon, the creative force behind Idea Engineering, a marketing, branding, and strategic communications agency, and also the Relational Intersect, a platform for discussing community. Simon and I are both based in Santa Barbara, and we cross paths in the podcast studio. I finished an episode, and he was helping a client get set up in the studio after me. Sensing a bit of kismet, I've stayed in touch with Simon, and I subscribed to his newsletter on the relationalintersect.org. I quickly connected with his main theme of building community. How are you today, Simon? Good, Tony. Good to be here. Great. I'm happy to share the mic with you. And just a little bit more about Simon before we get started. Simon grew up in England, but he spent his entire adult life in the United States. And he loves American classic cars, muscle cars. Um, Simon, what kind of muscle car do you have right now? Uh, I have two cars. Well, only one of which would be considered a muscle car. I've got two sort of classics. Uh, One is a 71 Buick Riviera with a 455 uh, motor. Uh, the other one is uh, a Buick Roadmaster Woody Wagon, the last of the full-size American wagons that came with a with an uh, LT1 motor under the hood. Wow. That's an only in America decision to put that motor in that car. So Buick seems to be the theme there. Sort of by accident, quite frankly. I didn't uh, just the two cars that I liked, and uh, and I got them. Although interestingly, I, re- I really believe in. Uh, consistent challenge well anywhere in life staying still is never a good thing and since i got my tesla i've drawn the line of i will never own another internal combustion engine teslas are just ridiculously fast (laughs) right right all that torque yeah uh to jump into why we're here today in one of our conversations, you shared with me that in your role as a branding expert, you find that all too often brands lack community. Simon, what do you mean by community and what does it mean to lack community and why is it important? Well, something I'll undoubtedly touch on more than once during our conversation today is some version of what is it you're trying to achieve? Something I've mentioned in, in, in essays past is there was a time in the, in the 80s where uh, a couple of economists out of Harvard really pushed this idea that, that eventually became considered normal and de rigueur, which is that shareholder profit trumps everything else. As long as you have that, then everything you do is good. Everything at that point gets reduced down to zeros and ones. Decisions start getting made that aren't really decisions. They're just reflexive actions because you're just chasing one specific goal. And a lot of negative things can then happen as a result. If all you care about is shareholders, well, then obviously you care something less about workers and families and communities, and all you're chasing is these these quarterly numbers. 
And so that bleeds into branding too, because if you're branding something, you're branding whatever, a product, a, uh, an organization, uh, an initiative. And it comes down to what's, what's your primary goal? And if your primary goal is essentially sales numbers and revenue, your brand is going to go in one direction. And if you have other goals, either, either in, you know, they may be not the highest priority, but they're a priority, or they become the highest priority. And certainly, I think part of our conversation and, and what's a lot of questions being asked in the world today, if, if these other things can become a priority, then you have an opportunity to create a community that might be different than the community you'd have if all you focus on is on quarterly numbers. It seems like building community is good marketing because it creates a positive image and creates goodwill. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Again, you know, you and I, we, we chatted a little bit before we started talking uh, on the mic and something that, that I really believe in, this is on a personal level, but it's also something that works well with the clients that I tend to have and the people that would be drawn to our company, um, you know, what's inside your heart? What is it you really want to do? And so if that's on the inside of your company or it's on the inside of the people you want to reach, then yes, doing that is going to help you create the reality that would that would be beneficial to, again, whether it's an organization or an issue or um, or product. Some brands are great at building community in terms of building and engaging an audience to create ambassadors or champions who will passionately help spread the word about their great products. Others have just developed great products. Both types have examples for carving out massive market share and even becoming a lifestyle. But then they fail to do right by their workers or their community in which they operate by adversely transforming the housing market to make it unaffordable by their own or any workforce. I'm thinking of Apple, Google, Amazon, for instance. You've described your relational intersect work as a piece of the puzzle that's been missing from traditional marketing. And I've been drawn into your writings because you share from a personal place about human ideals as they relate to critical issues like racism, social justice, income inequality, and others. And then you introduce the role of companies and brands to tie it all together. Tell me more about your focus for the relational intersect. You know, firstly, I would say that one of the ways I describe brands or a word I, I associate with brand and, uh, and I use these two words often together is as a prism. I, I refer to a brand prism. And I like to think of it that way because the brand prism is that which you sh sort of shine your messaging through. And much as a prism will um, uh, divert light in, in, in the truth of a prism to different wavelengths, but nonetheless, it, the, the light shines through it and then gets dispersed. Your messaging goes through your brand prism and goes out in the world. And then and the obverse happens. The world comes back through and, and interacts with your brand, your prism. And where you go with that tells a lot about what's on the inside of your company. So are you playing at being this thing or are you actually this thing? You can often get, you'll, you'll, if you really pay attention, you learn of what's on the inside of companies. So, you, you know, you, you, you gave the example of, of tech companies, you know, creating these housing uh, inequality issues in San Francisco and the, the idea of what you, well, funny enough, just yesterday we interviewed somebody um, who's based in San Francisco, uh, got laid off from their job and 
their idea of what they're worth, well, it's totally based on what you get paid in San Francisco. But what you get paid in San Francisco is based on what it costs to live in San Francisco. And so this person on the fairly young end of the scale just wasn't computing that you can't go to every market in the country, but just because you happen to still be living in San Francisco, get paid that amount. And so this is where I think a lot of what these brands have caused potentially in that way is uh, it's more of a side effect than anything else. But it's certainly going back to an earlier point, what is your focus on? It's interesting that Google left that one of their first, maybe it was their first motto in a way was don't do, don't be evil, which they actually, funnily enough, very quietly retired just a couple of years ago, which I found very interesting. Yeah. I thought, wow, did the bar of don't be evil become too high? <laughs> you needed to retire it? Maybe. Companies, they, sh- much as people do, you show who you are to the world and how you live in it. Um, if people are going to pay attention, and over time they will, it all comes down to people, and it's people making decisions for companies. Now, depending on what's inside those people's hearts and depending on what their main focus is and what they consider the most important, the company will follow. You know, I think of Amazon. So this year, I'm, I may have mentioned to you before, I'm in a history book club. I've been in the same history book club for 15 years. And this year, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I hadn't done it previously, but this year... I suggested to the guys in the book club that we buy all our books from a local bookstore, Chaucer's. Great bookstore. The people there are just really into books. And and it's a local business. And so, you know, there's 10 of us in this book club. and We do about 10 books a year. So that's a lot of books. And, and we bought our books from there. And it actually felt good. And versus previously, we kind of buy them from Amazon, which is really easy. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of statement on the world that we lived in that one day I literally remember, which just made me laugh out loud. I was lying on my sofa in my living room and I f- realized I was 100 pages away from finishing a book that I was on and I hadn't yet bought the next book. And I thought, oh, the next book is, is uh, West with the Night. Brilliant book for anybody who wants to go and get it. But West with the Night by Beryl Markham. And, and I thought... I think somebody gave me that book as a gift. And if they did, it would be in this big jumble of boxes that was in my garage. And it was easier because of the world we live in to actually just say, oh, screw that. I went online, bought it from a bookstore in London and had it shipped from my sofa. That that seemed easier than walking across to the garage and starting cracking open boxes. Mm -hmm. Because of that, we have Amazon. And Amazon has done a lot of damage to communities. That's just the truth of it. It's, right. it's I've, changed. I've, I've thought of um, a topic about community. Building community is, is actually asking the question, why not pay more? You know, people are always driven by price. And the problem is, is that if you're not willing to pay what would really be the market rate that considers the costs for a business to operate in your community, then you're driving that business out of business. Mm-hmm. So why shouldn't you be willing to pay more than what you would pay to someone who has extremely lower costs like an Amazon in order to support a local business? Well, actually, Tony, I'd broaden the perspective of what it means to yourself when you say what you're willing to pay. Don't keep the money. Don't keep the, the conversation purely focused on how much money is exiting my wallet at this moment. If you focus it purely on that, then Amazon, of course, is going to beat 
your local competition most of the time. If you broaden the perspective to, of what's going to happen to the world that I live in, you live in a small town. Uh, certainly the, to, to you and I right now, I mean, this is a sm- small city, but it's much smaller than any city I've ever lived in before. And what's going to happen if every time I spend money buying something, that money leaves this town? What's gonna, what kind of place do I end up living in? Do I end up living in a place where there's just basically a warehouse and some people will work there and then a lot of other people who otherwise would have jobs and be part of this community, they really don't or they're left with menial tasks because all the bookstores closed and all the whatever other kinds of stores closed. We don't have those anymore. There's a price to that, but it's a very sort of ephemeral price and it's very easy to ignore because it's not right in front of you. All you really notice is what's leaving my wallet right now. But I would take the buck or two bucks difference and think of that, I'm investing in my community. I'm investing in my neighbor still having a job. And that ties directly into what kind of community am I going to live in? It's kind of a cold community when it purely comes down to price. But it's a very, it's a very powerful and frankly insidious argument. Uh, and one where it really comes to light is in uh, air travel. People relentlessly complain about the fact that air travel, well, certainly before when people used to travel by planes pre-COVID, um, has just turned into cattle herding. I mean, you're just sort of stuffed into an aluminium tube and driven through the sky. <laughs> aluminium. <laughs> That goes back to being I from England. It. I love it. <laughs> um, you're in an aluminium tube going through the sky. But yet, when it comes time to buy your ticket, if people, and it's been tested plenty of times because the airlines are running a, essentially a constant test on this, if you ask people if they want to pay more for something better, they tend not to. They still just want the cheapest price. And so it, it, it really does take a moment to stop and just say, what what is the real price I'm paying? I here? always have to wonder if I'm paying a super cheap price for air travel. How safe is that? How much have they been able to invest in the upkeep, the maintenance of the airplanes? You know, what's the quality of the work going into that? It's a it's a. <laughs> I mean, luckily, uh, I mean these days I'm I'm not I'm less certain. Luckily, the FAA, with with a couple of exceptions, has been pretty good. It's a, we we still have the the safest. You know, we have. S- some regulatory Ex- muscle somewhere. Where regulation is a good thing. Oh, I think right? there's plenty of examples where regulation is a good thing. Agreed. <laughs> I want to go back for a second to something you brought up, which was the B2B versus B2C. And I completely un- can understand how, from a marketer's perspective, a branding, messaging, strategic communicator's perspective, that the- those components of the B to C, the two channels, B to B and B to C, could be basically interchangeable. You know how a brand is positioned, what its identity is, how it's messaging and promoting. Um, but where where there is a difference would be in in the sales process and kind of how it's distributed and the the roles and responsibilities and activities of the people that are in those distribution channels are definitely different. So, for instance, in B to B. You have to understand how to maneuver through larger companies, through corporate environments or through office environments and the, the, the buying chain, the decision chain, you know, the different parties that are involved. Whereas with a B2C channel, it's more about speaking directly to one person or maybe two people who are making a decision and it's kind of the, the location is in a store. So there's 
there's a difference to that piece of the marketing piece as well. Without a doubt. But, yeah. but, and this to me is a very important but, how you exist inside that person's brain is just as important to either one of those equations. Mm-hmm. So they may be a different tactical path you might have to walk. The, 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 the reality of you have to go through a GSA channel or through some corporate purchasing t- channel, or actually my wife, who was one of the buyers for the city of Santa Barbara. I mean, so that's all she lives inside is these worlds of, of very sort of structured contracts. Sure. But what makes you people want you in the first place? That's a person thing that exists inside their right. skull. And that's where it becomes the same. And, and I have uh, you know an example that I often pull out because it was just such a fun moment for me. Years ago, uh, in fact, right after where, when the, the last big recession hit, 2008, 2009, um, you know, marketing being a leading edge indic- indicator, I mean, we just took it in the shorts hard uh, immediately. I mean, we just had no income for a couple of months. And I went to full scramble. And, um, you know, I used to be based in Washington, D.C., and I came up with a, a government contract to do some uh, communications work for the Bureau of Land Management. And so I ended up flying out to D.C., and I'm walking around with the deputy director of the BLM. And we're just chatting about, you know, sort of messaging and branding. And and she stopped and she goes, now, Simon, just remember, you're talking to, because it was internal communications. She said, uh, you're talking to government employees here. And I knew where she was going. And I, I kind of laughed. And I said, you know, the the Department of Interior building, it's a colossal building. It takes up an entire city block in each direction. And I said, you know, there are it seemed there are four big entrances to this building. I've actually walked through each of them, and I didn't see a lobotomy station in any at any one of them. <laughs> so all the people that work here, they're just like all the people that work everywhere else. Again, the mechanisms might be different, but what but I pulled out an iPhone. I had an iPhone in my pocket at the time. I pulled out an iPhone and I said, they still appreciate what this is for the same reasons other people do. They still feel the same draw towards Apple that other people obviously do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's as true for them as it is for anybody. Where it can become dangerous is where you imagine that somehow people become not people because they're inside of an organization. No, those, the, the, that same messaging, all the same attraction or detraction happens because they're humans. You're dealing with humans at the end of the day, and it can get dangerous. And and interestingly enough, um, one of the ways that it can become too easy for people to let go of communities when they stop thinking of people. You know, there's a great, what is that great movie? Is it 39 Steps? I mean, this is a very old classic movie, but it ends up with a guy up on a big wheel in Berlin, and he's looking down, and he goes, he's pointing at the specks of people on the ground, and he goes, would it matter to you? If one or two or however many of those specs just disappeared, he goes, you, you, you wouldn't care. As opposed to someone standing right in front of you, because that's a person. When they, when they become specs, it's easy to be, in, in essence, cruel, because right. you don't have a connection to them. And that's the beauty to me, in essence, of community. You have living, real, focused connection, and you start recognizing your fellow human beings, and you want for them as you'd want for yourself. So tell me more about the relational intersect. How is it different from idea engineering? I mean, it seems to me like building community, while it's a part of the business that you do and the skill set that you bring to branding, it also feels like it's part of your DNA. And I mean, so when you think about the ex- this extension of your 
practice right now by developing something that has its own identity and it's called the relational intersect, you know, what is it exactly that you're doing there? So much that pops into my head is, is just, you know, stories from my own life. And I think you've said it. And as anybody who, who receives or, or visits the relational intersect will see a lot of my writings. I mean, these things come from things I've noticed in my own journey through life. And one very powerful moment to me, which I realized was special at the time, but but became in reflection much later in life. It just I realized it was such a pivotal moment in a way of my life. I went to uh, the Duke of York's Royal Military School in England, uh, and laughingly, I'd lived in America many years before I realized that in England, be saying you went to military, or in the United States, when you say you went to a military school, it's, it's like reform school, where in England, this was kind of this prestigious school that I went to for, for um, it was like a high-end private school, but but for not kids that could afford that. My, my father was, a, you know, went through the military from buck private up, and this was what the school was for. Your father had to have gone through the ranks. And so I went to this, this tremendous military school, and uh, at the end of my time there, um, for a long time, I thought I'd go into the military. It was just kind of the family business uh, and ended up deciding not to. And I went to visit the school bursar, who I didn't know very well. He was a very imposing sort of um, August fellow. Uh, and just there was just something about him. He just, he, I never saw him raise his voice, but he just, you were kind of scared of the guy. And so I just went to visit him because he, I'd been dealing with him a little bit about potentially going into the military. And told him, you know, that I was leaving and, and and I wasn't going that route. And I went to leave his office. And as he had this giant office, and as I got to the door, I was almost through the door, and I I heard him go Dixon, and I poked my head back in, just thinking like some hammer was heading in my direction. And he goes, "You'll do well in life because you love your fellow man." And may still be the nicest thing that was ever said to me. I didn't fully get it at the time, mm-hmm. but he was right. I love people. I just love people. And somewhere there was the, the the beginning of the relational intersect. I haven't done a good job of loving people all of my life, but but I've right. I've tried to. And I'm certainly trying it more overtly now, but not just for myself. The relational intersect is a conversation. And it's a conversation that maybe what I want to explore is just different ways of looking at relationships and ways of thinking that may not be necessarily obvious, although sometimes become obvious once it's been posited. Uh, and I get that a lot from people who read the essays on there. If I hadn't really thought of it that way, but that makes sense. And that helps me reposition how I might approach something. And I think it's more important than ever now. There's just so much pain in the world. And a lot of people are getting demonized um, a lot of it politically, but I think a lot of it isn't politics. I think you know, we're at a time without a doubt where for middle-aged men, the suicides are just hockey sticking, um, going up at a tremendous rate. I think a lot of that is tied into you know the, the, the men that are in the sort of 50s now. They're the first generation in America, maybe ever, who are realizing and coming to the understanding of they're not going to go past the achievement of their parents. And there's such an, a crushing identity blow from that because that wasn't what they were brought up to be. 
the you know the men of that age were brought up to be leaders of households and this is their identity i'm not this is i'm not speaking about you know what's what should be just what you your identity you're brought up with you'd lead the household you'd be in better shape than even your parents were you'd be passing on something to your kids um and the reality for so many people is just kind of the obverse of that you might need the help of your parents in your 50s you are mired in debt you feel powerless in the world and when your identity that you've believed in is one thing and when your reality suddenly becomes something very different it's a very tough position to be in and some people unfortunately are reacting that to, you know in the worst possible way which is they they you know the word hopeless has really come to be a word I've focused on the last few years. I've done a lot of work um, with idea engineering around suicide prevention. How bad must your life feel if the best option you think you have is to end your life? Hopeless. You have no hope. If you, if you think that's the best thing you, the best thing you can do for yourself and your family is to end your life. That's that's just so brutally sad that people are finding themselves in that position. And I think there's a lot we can do about it. I think it's important to note that some of the strength in the fabric that you're weaving comes from corporate responsibility. Because we've both talked about how we're often disappointed by how capitalism, when it's just about profit, you know, it creates more greed and profit than it does create solutions. You and I recently keyed in on uh, George Romney, uh, Mitt Romney's father. Um, and I, I had read about him in uh, These Truths by Jill Lepore, and you wrote about him on The uh, Relational Intersect. And his story is notable because of his beliefs and his values that were somewhat contrary to the normal sort of profit is king ideal of capitalism. Um, wh what did you think was significant about George Romney? Well, I think a point I'd like to make first, because I think it's an important point, is there are certain words, uh, and, and it's, it's a moving target and it changes over time, but there are words that I considered, or I try to consider retired to me, sometimes temporarily, sometimes not. Uh, liberal is one. Capitalism is, is another right now because these words have become so um, reflexively and re reactionarily uh, loaded that it's, it brings people to a halt because there's almost, it feels like there's an entire statement in one word. Right. And, and it's often not the statement you're trying to make. So I try, capitalism is frankly is a word I try and stay away from because capitalism per se, is there's nothing wrong with capitalism, but there's so many flavors of it. So which one are you picking? And but but when you use capitalism now, it's very possible that you might be talking to somebody who thinks that if you're against anything that might be termed capitalism, then you must be pro whatever the opposite of that, exactly. which could right. be could be communism. It could be one of a whole a bunch of other things, including just other versions of capitalism, um, because I am pro capitalism, just not necessarily the winner take all let's get rid of every regulation, let's not take care of anybody. Uh, I think that's such a short-sighted version of capitalism. Why wouldn't you take care of your workforce? People think of universal health care as something bad. Really? That's taking care of your workforce. Mm -hmm. 
how many workdays get lost because of people who haven't been getting regular preventative health care end up with something bad that completely demobilizes them. It, it's, it's so short-sighted to me. I like to broaden that picture and have a, have a different view of capitalism. So anyway, so, and, and that's a good intro to George Romney because he came from a different view of capitalism. That man would have laughed if he'd said that you might be, that he might not be a capitalist. He's like, what could be right. more capitalist than me? I ran General Bloody Motors. But he, he, well, much as I was just saying, this was a guy who turned down pay raises. He was like, I get paid plenty. I get, there's, there's no need for me to be paid more than I am. Let's just give that out to the other people that work for General Motors, of which there's many. Why would I get paid this much idea. more? You know, there's a saying from England, uh, enough is as good as a feast. This is an area that actually I don't talk about too much, just in general. Not because I have any fear to talk about it. It's just that I, I too, too many people push too hard into this. But my faith is very important to me. And, and something you'll hear in church, but I, I, I could apply it to other things. But you'll certainly hear in church, you'll hear a pastor go, you've got a God-shaped hole in your heart that you're trying to fill with other things. Now, you can take God is one of those, funnily enough, loaded words for a lot of people. Um, you take that out and just sort of put peace and humanity uh, in, in, in place of that word and just say, you've got a hole there and you're trying to stuff it with money or stuff or beating other people. There's, and if, if that's what you're doing, there's never enough. And I look at someone like George Romney and others like him, they, they found something else to stuff in that hole, the stuff that actually fills it, the stuff that rewards it. And there is no amount of money that can displace just, I think, taking care of your fellow man, just building relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, you got one trip through this planet and... If you think money is the equation that's going to make it a good journey, you're out of your mind. You'll never be happy because there'll never be enough. And if all it becomes is about numbers, eventually you end up, sadly, where America is right now. We're, we're, we're at hist historic levels of disparity between the top and the bottom. That doesn't bode well for us. But if you're not investing in your workforce, if you're not investing in your country, if you're not investing, frankly, in your environment and all these things that unfortunately have become very politically loaded, what do you have for later? In some ways, America has, has allowed itself to get to a point where it feels at times it's being run like a going out of business sale. Well, do you know what happens at the end of a going out of business sale? You go out of business, Tony. <laughs> That's why it's called the going out of business sale. And you can't sustain that because it becomes hollow and you've got nothing following in behind you. When you're doing a going out of business sale, funnily enough, you're not buying new inventory. Mm -hmm. and, and it feels that America is allowed to get itself to a place where we're not investing in renewing our inventory. We're not investing in the kids that are coming up. We're not investing in the, in the people who, frankly, do all the stuff like, you know, building the roads and building our infrastructure. All that is being left behind. And we're not keeping them physically and mentally well. Eventually, that breaks down. But in the short term, it gets displaced by a lot of anger. In your writings, you pose some great questions that provide a solid framework for how we can think and act to build stronger communities. Questions like, where would it be great for our community to be? How could our workers be happier? How could our people be healthier? How could we hand a better world off to our kids? And you've talked about several of those already today. You've brought them up in, in 
parts of the conversation. But how are you developing your platform for discussion of the relational intersect and making it available so that these important questions that you pose are seeing progress? You know, the, the relational intersect itself, uh, that, that the site and the essays, that, that's, that's still relatively new. It was something that, that started this year, maybe the beginning of last year. You know, we're involved right now in a gigantic, involuntary, social, psychological experiment. Uh, in an essay I wrote right at the beginning of COVID, uh, you know, I pointed out that what tends to be thought of as, as, as these great pivotal moments in, in U.S. history were actually very difficult moments to go through. You know, the Second World War, the Civil War. Um, we're in one of those right now. This country is, is battling, battling for its life, and a lot of people are losing their lives. Um, you know, a, a book that I, I just finished was South by Ernest Shackleton. And, you know, it's a story of a, of a British um, uh, expedition to be the first to walk completely across the South Pole. So not just to the South Pole, but past it and across to the other side. And, 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 and at that, it was a dramatic failure. They got caught in the eye. I mean, they just had multiple issues. But the story of how they stayed alive and that Ernest Shackleton, you know, with the help of his crew, but they saved every crew member on on the um, on that on the um, endurance the ship. They didn't lose one man on the endurance, and I mean they were stuck on the ice flows for seven months, where it never got above freezing. Uh, sorry, it never got above zero, below, below, below freezing. Um, then got to Elephant Island. They were stuck there for months longer, and then Ernest Shackleton, and a few guys in a twenty foot essentially whaling boat. With, with no sunlight, so by just dead reckoning, sailed 800 miles and then to South Georgia, then walked across just essentially a giant glacier. It's this incredible story. Well, funny enough, the ship was called Endurance, but it's a story about resilience, the resilience of humans. And there's so much greatness in the resilience of humans. There's downsides too. We, we've managed, because we're so resilient, we've taken over the whole planet and we're working on wiping it out and every animal that's not us upon it. Because other animals couldn't do what Ernest Shackleton did. If everything changes, they tend to die. They 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 evolve over millennia, not you know over the the month of March. Um, it's been amazing to watch the challenge we have been hit with. I mean, businesses just closing down left, right, and center. The inability to meet, and everybody has figured out ways to to make it happen. We're showing right now what we can do when we have to do it. But it's very easy to become, in a way, content. It's funny because so many people are actually have massive discontent, but they're not jumping up to really change it. I'm hoping, I'd love to think that the, the Phoenix part of COVID will be, and it's a question I've encouraged personally for my company, for the town that I live in, for the nation, for humanity. If we're going to have to put in all the struggle to get past this, let us not reflexively struggle just to go back to where the hell we were before. Let's at least question it. Now, we may question and go, no, that was just great. We'll stick with that. But we may question it and go, you know what? We could live life differently. We could make different priorities and, and really think big. You know, it's, uh, I'm a big believer, frankly, for cities. How many roads do we need? I mean, if you look at from a city from the sky, it's actually made for cars and people live there. I mean, it really is. We talk about housing shortages, but we got a road glut. 
How about if we closed off a bunch and just put houses there for people to live right. in? How about, you know, even right here in Santa Barbara? Reprioritizing. Re Asking right. what's important again and take nothing as certain. Don't do anything just because it's the way it's always been done. Just ask the questions. It's okay if you ask the question and go, no, that is the right way. But it's amazing what might come up when you just take off all sort of presupposed notions and allow yourself to roam free. I feel like you're a, um, that you have a very positive outlook on things in general. You're talking about resiliency of, of humans and so forth. Um, it feels like the biggest challenge that we really face as a nation or as a world is the lack of shared ideals. Because at least with shared ideals, we could have a conversation that moves towards solutions. But if we don't have the shared ideals where everybody is kind of us or them, you know, that's my glass is half empty perspective is how are we going to get to a place where we're talking about solutions instead of just arguing about the problems? Tony, have you been at a store where someone has absolutely lost their temper uh, about not wearing a mask and started throwing things and spitting on people? I have not witnessed that in person. Okay, me neither. Now, I don't for a second, I'm not going to suggest that ain't happening out there. But when that's what gets shown, it seems to be much more prevalent than it is. People are amazing. People are wonderful. There's so much good out there. But in the, in the essay I'm working on right now, the one point I want to make, and it's an important point I'll make right here and now for anybody that's listening, because of the internet, because of social media, the silent majority is still silent, but the vocal minority is much louder than they used to be because they have many more avenues to shout and many more ways to shout louder. Rest on that for a minute. When you, I remember somebody once saying to me, when you hear that guy in a restaurant talking really loudly and being annoying, it's not only you that hears him, everybody else hears him too. Maybe somebody will get up and say something, maybe they won't. But it's not only you that's being annoyed by it. Everybody is. They all hear it. Everybody else sees the pain that is out there in the world. They might not take the moment to define it as pain. They might take moments just to define it as really annoying people, people with bizarre belief structures, people that are cruel or idiots or whatever. Um, when really often it's just people who don't have good ways of dealing with the pain that's in their lives. And there's a lot of that out there. But there's more good than bad. And I think most people are good. But a lot of that's silent. A lot of it you don't see because it's not being made so overtly. It's people just living their decent lives. And so if anything about the relational conversect, the relational intersect, it's a conversation about that. It's a conversation to allow sort of goodness to shine out, to allow conversations to take place. At its zenith, it would be to let people see the good, not only in others, but inside themselves and find ways to deal with the challenges and the pain of life that is not so uh, negative, again, to themselves often and to those around them. But a lot of people just don't have the tools for that. I look forward to the next essay from Simon Dixon on the relationalintersect.org. Tremendous. Thanks for having me here, Tony. You're welcome. 
I want to thank my audio engineer, Dustin Walker, and I also want to thank you for listening. My goal is to develop a large following, so I want to ask you to take a minute and subscribe to Miller Meets World on Apple Podcasts or follow Miller Meets World on Spotify, and then slide on over to the ratings and give me five stars. Thank you so much.